For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. You're listening to Daybreak. It's been a week like none other in American politics, but we now know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been elected as the next president and vice president of the United States. Today, we're discussing what happened and what to expect going forward. Later, we dive into some Princeton numbers with an interview update on the Vote 100 project. It's Sunday, November 8th. It took a while to get there, but yesterday morning, America finally got the news it had been anxiously waiting for when every major media outlet projected that Joe Biden will be the nation's next president. In the end, President-elect Biden's victory looks to be fairly decisive. He's currently on track to win 306 electoral college votes, the same as President Trump four years ago, and the Biden-Harris ticket has already received more votes than any ticket in American history. The Democrats are also set to win traditional Republican strongholds of Georgia and Arizona for the first time in 24 and 28 years, respectively. But this was not the landslide, blue-wave Biden victory that many were predicting. For the second election in a row, most polls greatly underestimated Trump's chances against a moderate Democrat. The president won by wide margins in Texas and Ohio, where we expected close races, and is set to win decisively in Florida and North Carolina, where Biden had been pulling ahead throughout the race. Even in states he narrowly lost, like Michigan and Wisconsin, Trump outperformed some polls that suggested he would lose handily. It's not entirely clear why that happened. There's a popular shy Trump theory that the president has lots of people who vote for him but are too embarrassed to admit it in polling interviews. Another theory goes that his crowded rallies across the country were successful in turning out his voters. Either way, Trump did turn out his support. It's possible he'll end up receiving 10 million more votes this year than when he won the election in 2016, with his final tally nearing 71 million. The Democrats earned 75 million, though, and yesterday's call of Pennsylvania for Biden pushed him beyond the 270 electoral vote threshold his campaign had been waiting for. Last night, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and President-elect Joe Biden addressed the nation for the first time, pledging that they would work for all of America, even those who did not support them. Harris emphasized the historic nature of her presence on the stage, reminding the country that the 19th Amendment was just 100 years ago and the Voting Rights Act passed just 55 years ago. She thanked the, quote, Asian, white, Latina, and Native American women throughout our nation's history who have paved the way for this moment tonight, women who fought and sacrificed so much for equality, liberty, and justice for all, including the black women, who are too often overlooked but so often prove that they are the backbone of our democracy, end quote. President-elect Biden drew upon his faith to underscore his desire to unite America, proclaiming that it's a time to heal. He also reached out directly to Trump voters, stating that, quote, to make progress, we must stop treating our opponents as our enemy. We are not enemies, we are Americans. Biden introduced his plan to appoint a team of doctors and scientists who would begin to work on a plan to combat the coronavirus pandemic. He also reaffirmed his administration's dedication to fighting both climate change and racial justice alongside. It was clear from his speech that Biden intends to govern America with optimism, tenacity, and empathy, to the best of his ability. Trump has yet to concede and will pursue victory through the courts during the coming weeks, but success seems highly unlikely. While some states will be within the recount margin, recounts almost never change results, typically only changing margins by a few hundred votes. If you think back to the Bush v. Gore debacle in Florida in 2000, after the final Supreme Court decision that gave Bush the presidency, he won the state by 537 votes. Currently, Georgia's margin is the lowest, and the president-elect leads there by over 9,000. Biden's electoral vote cushion also requires that the Trump campaign somehow change results in multiple states. This hill gets even harder to climb, considering the campaign has been unable to produce concrete evidence of fraud so far. 
While huge Republican turnout was not enough to secure victory for the president, it gave a huge boost to Republicans in down-ballot races. Last Sunday, we told you to keep an eye on close Senate races between Democratic challengers and Republican incumbents in Maine, North Carolina, Iowa, and Montana. In the end, Republicans will have held on to all four of those seats. Those victories give the Republicans 48 seats in the Senate so far, with another one expected to come once the race in Alaska is called, but we'll talk about that in a second. Georgia's two Senate races will be decided in a January runoff, and if the Republican in either race wins, the party will hold its Senate majority. Republicans fared even better in the House of Representatives. Democrats went into Election Day hoping that a Biden victory would help them expand their majority and add up to 15 seats in the House. Instead, Republicans won nearly all of those close races and defeated some Democratic incumbents, shaving the blue majority down to single digits. Republicans elected a sizable number of women and people of color in these flips, including Stephanie Bice, the first Iranian-American to serve in Congress from Oklahoma's 5th District. So, what's to come? There are four outstanding Senate races to be decided. In North Carolina, Tom Tillis leads by nearly 100,000 over Cal Cunningham, and while there are mathematically enough outstanding ballots for Cunningham to overtake Tillis, it remains highly unlikely that he would come back and win. Meanwhile, an interesting race is brewing in Alaska, where 60% of ballots have been counted and Republicans hold a roughly 2 to 1 advantage over Democrats in statewide races. It's hard to know where the votes remaining to be counted in the state are, physically, as Alaska doesn't have counties. Independent Al Gross currently trails Republican Dan Sullivan in the Senate race, but Gross tweeted earlier this week that he expects to win once all ballots are counted. While we do know that remaining ballots are from early and male voters, it's unknown if trends which saw such ballots skew heavily towards Democrats will translate to Alaska. Finally, the two Senate races headed to runoffs in Georgia are likely to be incredibly expensive and will draw a massive spotlight. Many pundits consider Republicans to be favorites since down-ballot Republicans ran ahead of Trump in the state, but anything can happen. If you are looking for a break from the stress of election season, we're sorry, it's not stopping anytime soon. To bring it back to the orange bubble for a second, if you have a Princeton.edu email address, you've probably heard of Vote 100, the campus organization trying to get 100% of students to, you guessed it, vote. Their campaigns to get students civically engaged in this most fundamental of ways were ramped up this year, but were they effective? Daybreak's Francesca Block sits down with Vote 100 fellow Joe Shipley, class of 22, to discuss. So Joe, can you tell me a little bit about Vote 100 and its mission? Yeah, sure. So Vote 100 is a collaboration between students and the administration that is basically just designed to get as many Princetonians to vote as possible. And our goal is for one day, 100% of eligible Princeton students to vote in U.S. elections and for students who are eligible elsewhere to vote in whatever elections they're able to. Awesome. So do you have any numbers this year yet on how many Princeton students have voted and what changes have you seen or expecting to see from 2016 and 2018? So we don't have hard numbers yet. We are actually waiting on researchers from Tufts to collect the data. But, you know, by all accounts, people were really energized this year. They were excited to vote. Um, we actually reached out to every single member of the Princeton undergraduate community to get them to vote. Um, so if, if I spammed you with texts, I'm sorry, but it was all for a good cause. And so we're really excited to see um, a big jump in people voting this year. In that same vein, can you tell me what's one of the initiatives this year that you're most proud of? I think doing that individual outreach was really meaningful because there were people who had never cast a ballot in their lives who were very excited to for the first time. 
Um, and it was amazing seeing Princeton really provide the, the resources and the effort to actually encourage them to take that last step and go to the polls or send in their ballot by mail. Um, but it was also, you know, we've, we've tried to reach into like every aspect of Princeton's life. So, you know, we had like social hours, we had um, the voting power hour where students could like text their friends with celebrities watching um, and like talk to the celebrities if they texted enough people. It's hard to pick one initiative that was really the most exciting and the most impactful, but it was just great to see how much effort was put into this, this initiative. And what Vote 100 initiatives will continue to happen throughout the year to promote civic engagement on Princeton's campus? Well, like we're all seeing, this doesn't end on election day. We've got um, midterms coming up in two years. Um, we're doing our best to just make sure that all the momentum we built up over the summer keeps going. Because, you know, I, th I think it's fair to say that Princeton sometimes has a little bit of a campus culture of like, we're above this or this, all of these political things happen outside of the Princeton community. And our goal right now is just to sort of change that perception, to show students that their votes really do matter, that Princeton is not immune from changes in the outside world. Uh, and you know, we're gonna try to keep students engaged and especially try to get students to engage each other. Um, so we'll, we'll, like that's, that's a big goal of the ambassadors program, where we get a bunch of volunteers from the entire student body who are sort of on call to get the message out there that um, you should be voting, you should be following politics, you should be um, watching what your representatives do and making sure you're ready to make your voice heard when the time comes. What does civic engagement mean to you and why do you think it's so important? That's a big question. I think you know, civic engagement is just, to me, it's the knowledge that you have a say in what happens in this country. It's knowing that what, what in whatever form you choose to make your voice heard, someone is listening. And so, you know, that, that comes in a lot of different forms. People vote, people protest. But as long as you have the belief that something you do will change the future of the country and will change your own life and the lives of people around you, that's what civic engagement means to me. Just this sort of faith that individuals can have a positive impact on the future. That's all for Daybreak Today. Today's episode was written by Jack Anderson, Wilson Kahn, and Hope Perry, and produced under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horn, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark DiDici. Have a wonderful Sunday.